Hey, this is Dan Blewett, and welcome back to episode 25 of Dear Baseball Gods. So, before we get going on part two of uh, my guide to preventing pitching injuries, I have a couple of announcements. Number one, I'm getting pretty close to releasing my new pitching course, which there's a free mini course that I'm really, really hoping to get done by within a week uh, on the changeup, and then my full course, the uh, Bat Breaker Pitching School is probably a couple weeks away, but we're getting really, really close. I'm excited about it. Uh, And number two, I uh, actually got two presentations at the ASMI Injury and Baseballs Clinic uh, coming up this January, which I'm really excited about. So I attended that conference, which is awesome. I think this is the 38th annual this year. Um, It's hosted by, the again, the American Sports Medicine Institute with Dr. Glenn Fleissig and Dr. Andrews and Mike Reinhold and all these uh, big names in baseball. And when Lucas Cook, my business partner, and I, we went to to the ASMI a couple years ago, you know, we got to hear Dr. Andrews speak, Dr. Elitrock speak, uh, Dr. Romeo speak, like all these big names. Everybody talked and it was was really informative. So I have two talks. I'm going to be in the elbow session uh, sharing my experiences as a two-time Tommy John surgery survivor, which is obviously a very personal subject to me. And I get to uh, talk in one of the breakout sessions about pitching mechanics. So pretty excited about both those uh, those opportunities. And um, it's really uh, a privilege to be part of the, the process and their overall, you know, their goal of preventing injuries. And like I said, that's a very personal message to me. So today we're going to cover the second half of my sort of guide to preventing injuries. And again, this isn't like do this, don't do that, but it's uh, because this isn't an exact science and I'm not here to give you medical medical tips or anything like that. But what I am here to give you is five things today. So number one, we're going to talk about pitching style. Number two, about pitch counts and tournament usage. Number three, off-season structure, which is really, really important. Uh, number four, some newer technology, specifically the modus sleeve. And number five, uh, radar gun use and throwing as hard as you can because that is super trendy these days. So number one, we're going to go with uh, with pitching style here first. So it was disappointing to me in the last couple of years watching my academy's teams, the Warbird Senators pitch, including numbers of pitchers that I've worked with for years and years and years, uh, watching their mix of off-speed pitches. So most of these kids that we work with all winter religiously honing their command, their change-up, and working on their breaking ball. We don't exclude any of it. I mean, they're all important. Um, but when they get to high school, that's when they learn a breaking ball from me. When they're middle school, we stick to fastball change-up and location. And as we got out there, I know like I know what these kids have. So I have a number of high schoolers who have a good change-up that we've learned, that we've thrown a ton over the winter. They have a good breaking ball, and they have a good fastball. So they could use all of it. Hopefully it's a 65 or you know 70% fastball mix with 15% of their best off-speed pitch and 10 to 15% of their second best off-speed pitch, you know, something like that. Like the big league mix is about 65% fastballs, 20% of their best off-speed pitch, and maybe 15% of their secondary pitch. So, you know, that's a pretty pretty standard um, repertoire. So as we get out there, what almost everyone does is they throw all fastballs if they're 15 or 16. If they're 16 or 17 or 18, they throw all fastballs and curveballs. That's pretty much it. Now, I've said it's a sweeping generalization. There are some kids that throw change-ups uh, at, at different levels. There's more change-ups the higher you go. But I was honestly astonished at how few change-ups I saw 
in you know a six game weekend of 17 new kids 16 new kids i mean these are kids that need to have a change up that if they haven't been learning it um i don't know what they've been doing and even for the kids that have been learning it from me that they've been getting i've been in their ear constantly they still go out there and don't throw it even when they're, when they're watching you need to think at the very least like they throw all curveballs i'm not there they're like oh dan's here i should throw some change-ups they don't even bother to do that um and these are again kids with good change-ups and so i ask them i say hey you know, you threw 100 pitches today and you threw 45 curveballs. Where were the changeups? Like, why, why weren't they there? Like, well, so excuse number one is often, well, I was throwing too hard for them, so I didn't want to speed up their bats, which is almost never the case. Now, if you're a high school pitcher that throws 90, uh, your changeup is probably going to be like 82, 83, somewhere around there. That might be the case a little bit more. If you're throwing 85, it's not the case. Uh, obviously like at high school level between 75 and 82 is like the pretty standard range for a good high school varsity pitcher. So if you're throwing a change up somewhere in the 77 to 80 range, which if you're again like a mid to upper eighties guy, you might be, then sure. You're going to start to speed up some kids bats a little bit. But if you're one of those pitchers and you're a mid to upper eighties guy, you're also in that boat where you want to play the next level, right? And you're going to. So do you want to not have a changeup in college or do you want to have a changeup? Do you want to spend your time not getting or, you know, not speeding high schoolers bats up or do you want to pick and choose your battles and still throw those changeups in there and, uh, and make sure it's, it's ready for your freshman and sophomore year in college because all these pitches take a tremendous amount of time and effort to develop them. So, you know, we've heard the stories of, you know, guys get drafted, they go into, you know, certain major league teams, minor league system, and say this is a guy who has a wipeout slider, and that's the reason he got drafted. Suddenly, they say, "Hey, when you get to two strikes, not allowed to throw your slider." Now, that's a sticky situation because these guys get graded, they get judged. Their fate often comes down to their numbers. So, when they can no longer wipe a guy out with a slider, and they have to throw their change up, when they're forced to do this, it can really hurt them because now they can't get guys out the way they used to. Now their numbers get inflated. Now, at the end of the year, they did what the organization asked of them, but. If they have a 550 ERA, they may be like, oh, yeah, that guy's not so good. Let's get rid of him. And so it's tough to do that in that situation where your career is coming down to these numbers that they could heavily impact. Now, as an amateur, that's certainly not the case. Your ERA as a sophomore in high school does not matter. Um, and if you're getting watched by scouts and, uh, you know, the pro or college level, either way, it's not going to matter. You know, they're going to see this stuff. They're going to see the ability. They're going to see you working it in there. And that's a good thing. So with all of that, we have to be cognizant of not over-relying on breaking balls, which, again, almost everyone does. And, you know, Lucas Cook and I, uh, in the Twinsies podcast, we talked at length about this the other day and how it's just not very, it's not very fun. It's not very, it's not what young kids want to do. Oh, let's go throw change-ups to each other and see who's the slowest. That's not a, a fun thing to do. But they want to say, oh, I'm going to throw you, you know, Clayton Kershaw's curveball. Oh, look at that curveball. That thing was filthy. So that's like the typical, you know, mode of play for a young pitcher. They want to imitate the guys on TV, and they can throw the junkiest curveball in the world, and it'll still, like, break a little bit. It'll have some arc. So, you know, it's fun. And, you know, I did that as a kid. Every kid does that. But that's, A, really not developing a good curveball unless they've been taught. And, B, it's a... Uh, it's not setting them up well for later in life. So 
the number one thing everyone pitcher, every pitcher needs is command of their fastball. Secondary to that, they need a changeup. Secondary or tertiary to that, they need a breaking ball. You know, whether the breaking ball comes first, the changeup comes second, it doesn't matter. But the only guys in pro ball who don't use a changeup are the really, really hard throwers, the, the late innings relievers. And even some of those guys, like uh, I think it's Tommy, Tommy Canley. I'm not sure if I have his first name right, but Canley, one of the relievers from the Yankees, it was a really good changeup, like 92 miles per hour. But again, it kind of goes back to that problem where 92 is still pretty fast. So if a guy's behind his fastball, he's got to be smart and judicious with it and not speed up a guy's bat. But anyway, so high schoolers say that. They say that they're, sometimes they're throwing too hard and they don't want to speed guys' bats up, so that's why they don't throw any changeups, which isn't true. If you watch uh, hitter swings, you'll see when you can still sneak changeups in there. You can throw them on the first pitch. And if your changeup has movement, like the version that I teach, where it has some sink and run, it's still not just like this straight little cookie. You know, it's a it's basically just like throwing a sinker. If they're a little bit on their front foot, the sink and the run just does them in any way. Um, but beyond that, they say that, you know, I've, I've been struggling to locate it. So because they struggle to locate it, they don't throw it in games. And because they don't throw it in games, they struggle to locate it. So it becomes this vicious cycle that they never get out of. And so and then the entire summer goes by, and they haven't thrown any change-ups, and it hasn't gotten any better. So now they've gone by 12 months, and they're the same pitcher they were the previous year. So one of my big goals, because the research on breaking balls is kind of cloudy. Uh, the fastball is the most stressful pitch on your arm. I mean, it's, I guess, because you throw it the hardest course you really throw all the other ones just as hard but anyway the fastball is the most stressful that's proven through research curveball slider are less stressful in the arm however kids that throw more uh curveballs and sliders they report more arm pain than kids that don't so the verdict is kind of out where the question you know it's not to say that you can't throw them it's not to say that if you throw a curveball when you're 13 it's going to hurt your arm um but it's pretty clear that kids that throw more of them have more pain uh, so it's not exactly clear what the mechanism is between curveballs, sliders, and, uh, you know, an arm pain. So, and then, obviously, most young pitchers don't throw sliders. But when they do throw a curveball, it becomes what they rely on. And you know, most young hitters, they're very poor. You know, their timing of their bat, um, you know, their perception of each pitch, their weight shift, their swing mechanics, their approach to the plate, their discipline, all these things are really, really poor. So when you throw a breaking ball in the mix... Suddenly, everyone's on their front foot. Everyone's swing mechanics breaks down. Um, and so a curveball becomes a really effective pitch. And kids fall in love with it, and coaches fall in love with it. And often coaches call the pitches. So, you know, kids are throwing 40 curveballs in a 75-pitch outing, which is just really not okay because, A, most of the kids that throw a curveball in youth baseball do not throw the, the same version, the pro-quality version that they would throw when they're older. They throw this Little League version or this, this poorly taught version where they impart a lot of side spin, where it has this loopy, slidery, slurvy, um, soft breaking pitch. And so it's it's not like they're building from age 13 all the way up. If they were, that's great. Some kids get taught very well from a younger age. Um, I know a couple, one of their followers might be listening to this podcast. They have a good curveball that they learn from a, a credible source, a good pitching coach in their area. And they have legitimate curveballs that are thrown the exact same way that a you know 24-year-old would throw it. And that's fine. They're going to continue to hone that pitch and build it over the years. Even then, they should still be pretty judicious with it. So if you're throwing your curveball above 30% of the time, I think you're doing it wrong. 
you're throwing it 20% of the time, I think that's completely fine. And again, it's not the more stressful pitch. So if you're throwing 80 fastballs versus 80 curveballs, 80 fastballs are putting more stress on your arm. But again, we don't know why um, but curveballs, sliders, you know, breaking pitches in general do cause more arm pain in youth pitchers. So pitching style is important. And again, if we're thinking about long-term development, the stress needs to be on fastball command, developing a change up for strikes, change up command, curveball for strikes or slider for strikes, curveball command, slider command, either one. I should just be saying breaking ball. But so really that's the pitching style. So when you see kids who are just totally relying on the breaking ball, they're not learning to rely on location of their fastball. They're not learning to rely on uh, quality pitch execution, changing speeds. Really they're just using this trick, this special trick when they're young because hitters just cannot hit breaking balls very effectively. So we're going to move on to number two. So pitch counts and tournaments. Now we're going to come back. at So number four on my list here today is talking about the modus sleeve, which their goal is to sort of uh, eliminate pitch counts as the number one way to track pitcher workloads. And I think it's a great device, and we're going to talk about that. But uh, for now, pitch counts is still going to be, or pitch counts are still going to be the most readily available, um, simple and sensible way to keep pitcher workloads reasonable so the tournament culture now is it's pretty unfortunate it's uh you know you can play five six seven eight games nine games sometimes in a four or five day weekend so no matter what size your roster is you're going to deplete your pitching staff and these kids are going to be playing shortstop they're going to be playing center field they're going to be hopefully not catching and pitching but that definitely happens um they're going to be playing the field all the while they're doing while they're putting the same workload in as you know a college or pro pitcher might so you'll have high school pitchers going out and throwing 105 pitches and then they play shortstop for the next four days and that's significantly more throwing and significantly more difficult to manage um you know than a college or pro pitcher who they might throw the same 105 pitches but then they have a regimented next four or five days off where they're you know they have a day off they have a catch day they have a flat ground they have a bullpen they have a long toss day whatever it is they have a ton of arm care. They have a ton of flexibility and mobility. They have a, they're on a rigorous strength and conditioning routine. They have all these things going for them to help them recover to the next uh, to the next outing. But youth pitchers, they just get thrown right back in the fire. So they throw 105 pitches on Thursday, then they play shortstop on Friday. You know, in a double header, they warm up twice before each game. They warm up too early, then they cool down. They make their warm throws at first, um, obviously during the game, and between each inning, it's just a ton of throwing. These kids would be throwing six seven hundred throws in a weekend and of course that's been going on forever so it's not to say this is new and it's not to say that this is what's causing all these new injuries because kids have been playing baseball forever and they've been playing the field for forever but what we're seeing is kids pitching multiple times in a tournament which if they're used properly is often difficult to do so if they're a starting pitcher typically in any of these tournaments you're only going to start one time if you're following legitimate uh, pitch count rules and, and rest day rules so in general, I mean, in, I highly recommend everyone consult the um, MLB Pitch Smart guidelines, which are in, uh, they're made in concert with the ASMI and Major League Baseball. Some great minds put those together. So if you need pitch count guidelines for your kids or for your team, I highly suggest you go to that. And again, MLB Pitch Smart. But in general, it's about 15 pitches or 20 pitches per day of rest. So if you throw 60 pitches, you should probably have three days rest before your next outing throw 15 pitches in one day you can pitch the next day um, if you throw really more like 20 
I'm going to rest you if you're in my organization. So you pitch 20 pitches on Monday. You're not going to pitch in the game on Tuesday. And then you're back up to pitch on Wednesday. But in general, 15 to 20 pitches per day of rest is pretty normal. Um, and really, if you get if you start, that's going to be it for four days, uh, no matter what happens, because it's just a longer a longer warm-up process. You're getting up, you're getting down. So there's a lot of factors that I think um, parents and coaches sometimes don't, and, and players especially, don't take into consideration. It's not just the pitch count. So say you had a, a six-pitch inning, you sit down, your team you know, maybe gets a run or two, you get back up, you have a nine-pitch inning. Oh, you only threw 15 total pitches. Does that mean you can pitch the next day? Absolutely not. Two innings, even if they're really short, is still a pretty significant workload. And what's harder on your body than just the physical pitches is getting up, warming up, then you sit in the dugout for five, six minutes, then you get up again, you warm up again. And even if your innings are quick, the getting up and the getting down, the sitting up and then the getting back out and getting warm again, especially if it's not super hot, is much harder on the body. So it's not just about pitch count. It's also about getting up and getting down. That's one of the things if you talk to a starting pitcher who's been around a long time, he'll tell you early in the season, that's the biggest thing he's getting used to rather than just getting his pitch count up. I could throw 80 pitches in a bullpen any day of the week and not be overly fatigued by it. But if I chop that up into five 15-pitch innings with a five-minute break in between, I'm gassed by like the second or third inning. It really is the sitting up and or the, the sitting down and getting back up that makes pitching hard. So we need to think more about innings, maybe a little bit less about pitches. Obviously, if your inning goes long, that's another consideration too. So it's not just the inning itself on paper. Also, how did the inning go? Was it a really high leverage inning? You know, was it really stressful? You know, did this kid get inserted with the bases loaded and no one out and he had to get three outs that way versus one, two, three in a clean inning? Those are very different. You know, the amount of adrenaline, how hard he might be competing, how hard he might be trying to throw it, all those things, you know, the complexion of the inning. He might be cruising and he throws 12 fastballs out of 15 pitches versus nine sliders out of 15 pitches. You know, it just depends. The complexion of the inning is, is important. And obviously, as with young pitchers, their roles are often less defined. Sometimes a kid might start one weekend and then be in relief the next. He might spot start on Thursday and then come in relief on Saturday. You know, he might relieve on Tuesday and then start on Thursday. The mixed role thing is really, really hard on your body. And I had teammates tell me that. And I didn't really appreciate it until I did it myself in 2014. Um, I did a little bit in 2011, but I also did it in 2014, mostly the whole season. I think I had like seven starts and maybe 15 relief, relief appearances, something like that. But it was like 70 innings combined. And it was really difficult because you never get in a rhythm. You never get stretched out. You never get your workload to normalize, which again, we'll talk about with the moda sleeve. So it's really, really tough where you're throwing one inning, you know, maybe you throw one inning for two straight uh, weeks you know, with the day off in between like a normal reliever workload. And then you have to go throw five innings in a spot start. And now you're really sore. You've got three days until they really want you back in the pen. And then you're back in the bullpen again. And then you're back in the, it's just like the up and down of it. And your arm never getting used to the workload. It's, it's difficult. So I highly recommend that pitchers work to finding what their best role is. And we ask our kids and they'll tell us, I mean, you'd be shocked at how forthcoming kids will be. If you say, look, I don't care how you pitch. I just want you to be comfortable um, you know, say you've had some relief appearances and some starting appearances, which do you like better? Which do you feel like you're better at? You'd be surprised if like, if given the chance to talk about it and they feel like you're listening, they'll tell you. I mean, we have kids that are good pitchers tell us that like, yeah, I don't really like 
coming in when there's runners on base. I'm not really a big fan of being like a reliever in that situation. I really like starting where I can kind of pace myself and have my routine. And then we have guys who just like aren't the starter type. You know, they like coming in. They like being the guy to kind of bail, bail people out. And they like going short and quick and kind of give it all they've got for a short period of time. And speaking from my experience, I was a starter. So I was a reliever as a freshman in college, simply because I was like our worst pitcher on the team. You know, I was a no scholarship uh, walk on. And so after that, I mean, in college, you pretty much build to being a starter if you're one of their better pitchers because they always need innings out of the best, uh, the best arms. And that's even true in the big leagues. Uh, there's, you just get so much more value out of a starting pitcher than a relief, relief pitcher, no matter how good the reliever is. So uh, my sophomore year, I, I started starting, but I was kind of like the fifth or sixth guy. So I, I, I was, you know, I got six starts, but and then I was hurt. Um, and then my junior year and beyond, I was always a starter. And then I was a starter all the way through pro ball. I, again, I, I had a little bit of relief time as a, my second year. And then I converted fully into reliever my second to last season in 2015. And I didn't know what I was good at. Cause again, I was a starter from sophomore year in high school or in college all the way up till my fifth year in pro ball. And I was vastly better as a reliever. I wish I had figured that earlier. Um, because I mean, the thing was like, I had a good changeup. I had a very sharp curveball. Um, I could kind of throw strikes. I had pretty much average command for most of my career. I think I had a little bit, a little bit above average, really just control, not command. I was never really a command guy. But, you know, my best season, my last two years, I had something like a five-to-one strikeout to walk ratio. Um, you know, I only walked, I think, a dozen batters in 50 innings. So that's good. But, again, I was never a command guy. I just didn't walk a lot of guys. There's a difference. Um, but, anyway, I was just better that I found out late as a reliever and if I had done that earlier my career might have gone a different direction I might have got made it higher I don't really know but I figured out that even though I could start and I had the repertoire again I had three pitches that I could you know kind of locate for strikes that could get swings and misses um that's that's less uh that's a little more rare but even though my repertoire was was such I didn't throw quite enough strikes to be a super effective starter. I didn't wasn't super efficient with my pitches. Um, mentally, I was better as a, as a reliever. I, I liked having sort of like the bulldog mentality. Like I knew what I had to do rather than having this long, open-ended start. Um, so anyway, you know, for me as a player, I figured it out pretty late, and I would have loved to have figured it out earlier. And, you know, when again, when you're in college and then in the pro ball, if they give you a chance to start, that's a great, it's an honor. Like if that's what you want, you're one of their guys. And so you don't really turn that down. But, uh, if you have the chance to find out what kids are more comfortable with, and part of that comes from experimenting, they're not going to know until they've done it all. Uh, it's, it's a really positive experience where kids are excited about their role. They can predict their workload better. They can make a routine for themselves much more effectively. And ultimately I think it serves to improve a pitcher's output and the team in general. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about is off season structure. This is something the vast majority of, of youth pitchers. And when I say youth, I usually think of like elementary, middle school, but in this case, I mean all amateur pitchers, they just completely fail at it in most cases. So any off season should include the following probably two months off. Uh, that's a recommendation from the ASMI after the two months off, I think you need 12 weeks at least to build back up to peak ready for the season. And the reason I think you need 12 weeks is because you have to ask yourself a few questions. Number one, what does it take to get my arm, my workload up to where I need it for opening day? Uh, if you're going to start out 
early, uh, say you broke it into 12 weeks and you broke it into four, four week, or I'm sorry, three, four week chunks. So three months. Month one, you should be making mechanical changes while you're not throwing super duper hard because it's way easier to make these mechanical changes when you're not doing that. Every full speed throw sort of just unravels anything you're trying to do at low speed. So you have to do a thousand low speed drills to really impact your high speed mechanics. For example, it's just tough to change high speed movements at low speed, but just to, to make any high speed change, you do have to start off slow. So you can feel the changes, tell your body what you need to do. And you slowly and gradually add speed to the equation to get the new mechanics, the new changes you're making to stick. So the way I kind of break up in my off season programs. So for example, at Warbird Academy this winter, if you're in my pitching program, the first four weeks, we just do one private lesson a week. It just gives us a chance to get to know each other. We get to work one-on-one. That's where we take our sort of initial assessments and slow motion video and get some motor state and all that stuff. After those first four weeks, we go twice a week for the rest of the winter. It's small groups for the next eight weeks where we work on heavily on mechanics, heavily on developing your changeup, heavily on developing your breaking ball at low speeds for that first four weeks. And then we start to ramp back up. We do more throwing drills from a run. We don't do weighted balls, but we do a significant amount because the armor has to get up to speed. So we do a significant amount. I was cutting myself off of higher speed throws from crow hops and stuff like that. But um, really in the last like two weeks, so weeks like seven and eight. So we're slowly ramping up. So the first month is relatively easy. We start to get into like a moderate workload, weeks four, five, and six, and then like a heavier, higher, faster workload around week seven through eight. Then we jump on the in the on the mound, and then weeks nine, ten, eleven, twelve, uh, something like that. Well, technically weeks thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, we finish with twice a week bullpens, so like a Monday, Thursday, or a Tuesday, Saturday, or Tuesday, Friday orientation, something like that. And we're usually doing thirty to forty pitches per bullpen. We usually break that up into one to three innings. Um, not one to three, two to three innings. So that's our general progression. Depends on the kid, depends on how much they've thrown during the year, depends how old they are and when they need a peak and all that sort of stuff. But in general, that's the progression. And I think you need more weeks rather than less because you need to build up your, your chronic workload, which chronic workload, as we'll talk about, is just sort of like your long-term workload. So if you took a month, what's the average amount of throws you do per day or per throwing session? Um, that's where you're going to start to get a bigger sample size about, you know, what's normal for you. And so kids need that build up. A lot of kids just don't get, pick up a ball until January. And then they only have a couple weeks to get sort of in shape. Then they jump on the mound and now they're throwing full speed or close to full speed. And because they're doing that, any changes that they try to make are not going to stick. And they're basically just going to end up the same pitcher that they were the previous season. And that's not, not what you want. So again, in my opinion, 12 to 20 weeks is a good off season. Again, it depends how long your other season was. It depends on a lots of different factors, other sports, all that sort of stuff. But having a, a structured gradual buildup, and I think more days is better. Um, you know, I remember in the past, uh, and you know, and the internet's rife with nonsense from all different people. But you know, I remember, I remember seeing some Instagram posts about, I don't know, some guy was like, oh yeah, you know, lessons are a joke. They're just instructors stealing money and we only do group sessions where kids can come every day and get better because that's the way they get better. And I, I wholeheartedly agree that if kids can come in a structured environment every day and get their work in, that's fantastic. Uh, obviously, that's what you do in college. That's what you do in pro ball. 
However, that's just not realistic for most amateurs where they play basketball. Their mom has to take their their daughter to soccer practice. Their dad's working, and then he has to take uh, the other daughter to cello practice or to volleyball, and then their other son's playing football, and you know he's got homework, and he's got confirmation. He's got all these other things. There's so many other extracurriculars where we just, over time, my pitching program got whittled to twice a week, and it makes the most sense for so many families. If I did it three days a week, the amount of class misses would greatly increase. Um, and so anyway, just like, you know, me talking out loud, your structure is ultimately what you make it. Um, and whatever structure you have, just make the most of it. So for us, I would love if kids come in, throw three or four days a week, because I think that's ideal where your arm really gets in shape, heal a lot more reps. They don't have to be high speed reps, but they need to be, you know, high quantity. And, uh, but anyway, so we do twice a week and kids will throw between 50 and 90 throws, usually in a typical day. Most of those aren't full speed. Most of those are between 50 and 70% because we're trying to stay below uh, the sort of compliance threshold, which is basically when does what you're trying to do start to break down. So say you can throw a changeup perfectly, or at least, you know, the way we think an ideal changeup looks like for you. So we've been working with you on a changeup or a curveball and, hey, there it is. That's the one. When we can say, hey, there it is. That's the one. That's the one you want. That's, That's great for you. When we can say it like seven or eight out of ten times, then we can start to add a little more speed because you've kind of hit your threshold where you're very, very consistent and good at it. So say you can do that at 50 miles per hour and eight out of your ten curveballs have a good spin axis, which means they're spinning very straight. Um, it's hard to describe about one axis, but I hate using big terminology. Um, but anyway, say you have great curveball spin, eight out of ten at 60 miles per hour. Now we'll go up to 65 miles per hour. And now your compliance is going to drop to 6 out of 10. Because you're throwing a little bit harder, it's tough to feel it, you're not used to it. And then at 65, we keep doing that until it gets back up to 8 out of 10. And we continue to sort of gradually add speed until we get back up. Okay, now you're throwing 92 miles an hour again, and your chain-up is still 8 out of 10 at the correct speed. Maybe you're not locating them all and all that stuff, but in general, that's sort of how this, this works. And so you need a lot of reps to get comfort faster, to pick up, you know, new movement patterns, all that sort of stuff, to pick up the increases, um, not increases, but just your improved mechanics. And so, again, more throwing days is better, but it just, in a cold winter climate, uh, or cold weather climate, which it's super cold here in Illinois in the winters, it's just tough between all the extracurriculars, what your parents are doing, what your brothers and sisters are doing, um, all those things just factor into the fact that it's just tough for a lot of pitchers in today's age to throw three or four days a week indoors somewhere. So no matter what it is that you do, you need to structure it out really well. And I think if you just were very, very simple about it, where you said, all right, I'm going to go easy, moderate, and then build the full speed in my last month and over a 12-week period, I think it's a simple way to do it, and that's fine. And it's going to be worlds better than what most kids do. Because again, if you don't pick up a ball soon enough, you won't be able to improve your mechanics. You won't be able to improve your pitch work your pitch ability, which is, again, just like how good you are with your off-seat pitches. You won't be able to pick up uh, better command. You really just won't make much progress. So you need that time to slowly get your workload up, slowly acquire your new skills, and then apply them at full speed once you're ready to do so. So that's, again, what I think is a a big a big hole, a big omission in the off-seasons off of most uh, amateur players. Just their off-season structure is just not great. 
All right. Number four on today's agenda, we're going to talk about the uh, the newest piece of technology that I'm excited about, which is the Modus Arm Sleeve. So I connected with Will Carroll, who's, uh, I think, the director of community outreach and marketing for Modus. Uh, we connected at Saber Seminar, and I've been, the, the guys at Modus, including Brian, um, been extremely helpful uh, as I've been learning to use the sleeve more. Now, I had actually contacted them back in 2014, because when I was first coming back off of Tommy John, uh, I'd heard about the sleeve, I bought one. And I wanted to wear it during the season. I wanted to be like, kind of be on the forefront and help them gather data and see what it was like. But at the time, with their first prototype of the sleeve and the the first sensor being a little bit bigger, I just couldn't keep the thing on my arm. It just, I don't know, whatever it was. And to be honest, it sounded like it was me. Like other pitchers weren't having the same issues. But no matter what, when I warm up with it or throw it uh, at close to full speed, the sleeve, just like I guess the centrifugal force, just the sleeve just would slide down my arm. And I just knew for a fact that I couldn't be out there worrying about the sleeve. You only have so much bandwidth as a pitcher. And uh, I just didn't have enough extra to, to spend on, on that. And I figured it would kind of skew the data anyway. But since then, um, the technology's improved greatly. The sensor's a lot smaller. The sleeve is way thinner. Uh, it's got rubber, um, like sort of that silicone coating inside of it, which keeps it I mean, all the pitchers that have used it, I've used it, they've, it just sticks to you really, really well. So it doesn't slide anymore, which is great, unless you get like an ill-fitting one. We have some younger kids who are real small who it's tough for them to fit in sometimes. But uh, in general, like there's no reason to not wear it now. Like they've really done a great job with their second and third prototypes, I guess. But so anyway, the big thing with the Moda sleeve and the reason we're going to start using it is because they say that it's a better... It's a better tracking metric than pitch count. And the reason is they have some research that shows when you compare your long-term workload, what they call your chronic workload, to your acute workload, which is your short-term workload, that ratio within is going to determine a little bit of your, your injury risk. So, for example, short-term or acute workload, as they describe it, is seven days. So your seven-day average. Uh, your long-term workload or your chronic workload is a 28-day average. And they found that when you're in under a 1.3 ratio, you're, well, under a 1.3 ratio is where you want to be. Uh, if you're above 1.3, that your injury risk increases 26 times compared to those who are under 1.3. So it's easy to see this on graphs. Uh, this is a really great visual um, situation. I'm going to try to talk you through it as best I can. But so basically, if your long-term workload was 1,000 throws, Let's just keep it really simple. We'll just make it a big number. So your long-term workload is a thousand throws, and you're trying to get ready for the season. So you're trying to increase that over time. Again, don't think too much in the number, but say a thousand throws. Now, twelve hundred throws in the next week, uh, you're going to increase by what twenty percent, right? So twelve hundred divided by one hundred is a one point two acute to chronic ratio. So if your thousand throws was your long-term, your chronic workload, and twelve hundred is your short-term because you're increasing the next week to get your arm up into you know, better shape, quote unquote, or whatever, 1.2 would be that ratio, 1,200 divided by 1,000. A bad workload in that situation. Say you threw 1,000 throws over the last month, each week over the last month, and then this month, this week, you threw a 1,500 throws. That would be a acute to chronic workload of 1.5, and they found that that's a significantly higher likelihood of injury when you'd make jumps just like that in your workload. So if you think about this just from a logical perspective or if you've done anything else like marathon running or triathlon or weight training or just pretty much anything when you make big jumps what happens you get really really sore right maybe you tweak something you know they're uh, in one of their demonstration tutorials 
they talk about marathon. If you just jump out of bed and run a marathon, you're probably going to either be super messed up by it or tweak something or, you know, pull your Achilles tendon or whatever. Um, the likelihood of you not getting through that marathon is pretty high. But if you slowly build up, you know, five miles a couple times this week, eight miles, 11 miles, 13 miles, and you slowly get up there, tons of people finish marathons, right? So same thing with pitching that if you're always throwing 60 pitch bullpens and then opening day, you go out and throw 110 pitches. That's not okay. That's not a suitable acute to chronic workload ratio. So the moto sleeve is a couple different things, which is why I'm interested in for our organization. Because again, I've had Tommy John twice. So anything we can do to help kids stay healthy is great by me. Number one, the acute to chronic workload ratio. So tracking each kid's workload, that's a good idea. Better than pitch counts potentially. Now if we're just doing pitch counts, if that's all you have, just track them really well and try to keep kids within the same parameters. So if they're throwing 50 pitches on Monday and 50 pitches on Friday, say that's their like standard for the first month of your season, Try not to suddenly run them out there for 80 pitches the next time. You know, try to keep them in the, um, you know, 65 pitch range at most. That's going to keep you kind of within that like 1.2 range. That seems like a reasonably good idea. Um, And then just in general, they found that higher workloads are protective. So when you slowly ramp up, you can handle a good amount of throws per week or longer pitch counts in a game as long as you're used to them. So 120 pitches isn't some like magical number like this idea that human beings can only throw a baseball 100 miles per hour and we can only throw 100 pitches it's seems pretty arbitrary right that's just real convenient um, and i'm not advocating for throwing more in games i do know that in my first year pro ball i made 19 starts and i threw 120 pitches in every one of them except for the ones where i got shelled and had an early exit i was fine i didn't get injured that year but i also didn't feel good but at the end of the season, like I was used to 120 pitches. I knew if I was coming out of the seventh inning with 107 pitches, I was going back out and it was okay. So I'm not advocating for that. Um, but if you're used to it, which is again, what the motors company is saying is an important part of the whole injury prevention scheme, you know, then it's going to be all right. Just like anything else. Again, if you build up to it and then you're consistent with that workload, your body's going to adapt to it. It's partly this, the, the said principle, specific adaptations to impose demands. So if you impose higher demands on your body, your body will adapt, whether that's you know, muscles getting bigger, stronger, whatever, to handle that load. And that's how people get increased bone density when they, they work out consistently. It's how their tendons and ligaments get thicker. And that's why steroid users who don't get those long-term benefits, where they get super strong in a short period of time, they often get hurt quicker because their tendons and ligaments haven't thickened at a slow rate and their bones haven't got denser over a long period of time because they've progressed in a sensible manner. Rather, they shoot themselves up, they suddenly get super duper strong, and as they're sprinting down the track or they're pushing tons of weight in the gym, they tear their quad or their hamstring or whatever the weak link seems to be. So you see this anecdotally around just there's tons of examples in the real world, so I think it makes sense. Number two... The moto sleeve tracks a number of different metrics, including um, there's a number for arm stress, there's a number for arm speed, there's a number for your arm angle, so just a degrees, so 56 degrees, which is probably like a standard, slightly higher than three-quarter delivery, and your layback, so you get a number for, you know, some might say 164 degrees, that's how far your arm lays back. So it'll track all those consistently, and the biggest important thing, or the most important thing for that is not, oh, my arm stress number is 82 uh, you know, what's yours, Johnny? Um, everyone's different. Obviously, like I blow my elbow out twice. 
Was it because I did all these things wrong? No, my body just maybe didn't handle as much stress as someone else. So if my number was 90 and someone else's number is 90, he might pitch 10 healthy years in the big leagues and I might blow my arm out twice. So everyone's different. It's about figuring out what your baseline is. And that's what's really, really important. So if you have a modus sleeve and your son uses it consistently, you'll get a baseline like, hey, his elbow stress is always a 63. His uh, arm speed is always at 834. His arm angle is typically 52 to 57. And his uh, external rotation is typically 157 to 166, right? Now, while you're doing the season, suddenly those numbers change. So you see the arm... Uh, you know, the arm angle drops. He's usually a 55 and now he's a 44. Ugh, why are we dropping our arm, little Johnny? Right? That's an important, that's an important thing to, to note. Or say he always throws, you know, 80 pitches or so in his starts, but at, at pitch number 60, his arm angle starts to drop or his elbow starts, elbow stress starts to increase. Having a baseline of what's normal for a pitcher is really, really important. Just like going to your doctor for a checkup. So if you know what your testosterone levels are, or you know what your vitamin D levels are, or you know what your cholesterol levels are, then you can compare them, right, later on the road. But if you come in the first time you ever had a problem, and you're like, hey, my cholesterol is at 194. Well, it's like, well, what was it two years ago? I don't know. Has it always been high? I don't know. So having a baseline is really, really important. So if you have, you know, your son's arm stress is always a 65 or so, you know, 65 to 70, and now it's an 80, we need to figure out what's going on. Have your mechanics changed? Are you just not recovering fast enough? Do you need more rest? Are you playing the field too much? Like what's going on with your arm? Uh, what's, why are these numbers changing? So those are the two big things uh, that I'm most interested in as far as the sleeve. And I think they're really important because we haven't had a good tangible way before, a good objective way to say, okay, his mechanics start to, you know, poo-poo out around the, you know, 75 pitch mark. And here's the, here's why we see his arm angle drop. We see his arm stress increase. We see his, his layback start to decrease or increase or whatever. So those things are really important where if you have, uh, again, this baseline data, you can compare it long-term and you can kind of go from there. But I mean, the challenges with this sleeve are number one, some kids don't want to wear a sleeve at all. Number two, some kids don't want to wear a sleeve all the time. So to make, make good on the workload ratios, the ideal is that you wear the sleeve every time you touch a ball. So do you want to pitch with an arm sleeve the rest of your life? I don't know. How much do you value your arm? That's another question. I mean, it, it all just depends. So if you only wear it when you pitch, you can definitely track, you know, compare your baseline data to your in-game data and, you know, check your mechanics and your arm stress, all that stuff. That, that can be just, I wear it when I pitch. But if you want to track the workload, you need to factor in all your throws, not just pitching. So that's where it becomes really important. And it also is a good eye opener. Kids don't think, don't think realize how much they throw even when they're not pitching. You know, they have a double header and they're playing third base. How much are you throwing? You know, what does the sleeve tell you? Because it'll track every throw and that's pretty important. So again, uh, if you don't know about Modus, uh, I would check them out on the web. The, uh, the Modus sleeve, it's, uh, it's an awesome, uh, awesome device worth checking out. So number five, uh, we're going to go through the last thing, radar guns. So the radar gun can be a good tool. I'm not anti-radar gun. I'm also not anti-weighted balls. I'm anti-psychotic people, and I'm anti-doing uh, things the wrong way, and I'm anti-people trying to prove their own positions without being objective about it. So if you look around social media, you'll find just tons and tons of people sprinting into the camera uh, view and then doing this crazy crow hop, throwing as hard as they can to a net, falling over, 
and then you know showing their little uh their little radar gun ring oh great i hit 90 when i throw 77 off the mound it's like no one cares about that dude uh you're great you're in the 90 mile per hour club when you sprint 11 miles an hour so can that be an okay training tool sure do outfielders feel ground balls while they're running crow hop and throw the plate absolutely they do so all these things again can be fine i'm not demonizing any of them specifically but there's a lot of kids who are throwing as hard as they possibly can because they want to do what all these hard throwing kids are on uh are doing on social media and they think that everyone's throwing 90 now everyone's throwing 100 now because they see it from these running crow hops and they want that they don't want to get left left behind because they only throw 72 off the mound and they see their friend throwing 90 from a crow hop but they don't realize that their friend's throwing 90 from a crow hop not 90 off the mound i personally am super unathletic so i would throw harder off a mound than i would from a crow hop because i'm just not a very good athlete but i could also throw super duper hard and far from from the outfield i did a long toss demo and i could throw it from underneath one set of football goal posts through the other i could throw you know 385 feet or so but that's not important. You know, that's like cool. Like, great. I did that for a long toss demo one day and it's impressive. But ultimately, the only thing that matters is how you pitch in the game. And it doesn't ultimately matter how hard you throw in a game either. And there's more and more pitchers who rubberneck. Uh, and I've done it throughout my career. Like, I won't, I won't lie and say that I've never been the way I am now. But as you get older and wiser, you start to realize, you know, hey, velocity is an important tool. It's very, very important. It gives you the ability to make more mistakes. Um, but that's pretty much it. And so, yeah, it's important, but, you know, if you look at my career trajectory, my last three years, really in my last, all of my pro career, I didn't throw any harder from year to year, except for one year, and that was the year I blew my elbow out. So my first year, I was mostly 90 to 93, second year, 89 to 93, third year, I was 92 to 94 in spring training, then my elbow started to act up, and I blew my elbow out uh, a month and a half later, year four, I was 90 to 93. Year five, I was 91 to 94. That was my second year back from Tommy John. So I picked up a little bit after that second year. And then my last year, 91 to 94. So there wasn't like, oh man, I got better every year because I added two miles per hour every season. Not the case. I got better every year because I learned to pitch and I focused on pitching and I focused on getting outs. So it's perfectly fine to do part of your training, focus on velocity, but another part of it needs to be focused on pitching. And unfortunately, the two are often mutually exclusive because everyone's like, how hard was that one? How hard was that? And they're so obsessed with throwing every pitch at 85. And if you throw your first pitch, say you always throw 82 to 84 and you've never hit 85. Now you hit 85 once. You're super excited. I remember the first day I hit 90. It was awesome, right? I remember the first day I hit 85. It was awesome. And then as soon as you hit that higher number, guess what? You want every pitch to be that higher number. And now you continue on the cycle of being obsessed with how, how hard every single pitch you throw is. And I was like that. In college, I remember the year that I got or that I was hopefully going to get drafted. As it turned out, I didn't get drafted. I blew my elbow out. I was touching 89 and 92. Well, not touching. That was my range that year in fall ball. And the Rockies sat down with me. I got a bunch of letters. A bunch of teams uh, were interested in me. And they sure enough, did come back out in the spring. That whole, that whole winter between the fall, when I started getting interest, when I was 89 to 92, I was like, holy crap, I'm here. Like, I'm here. Like, teams are interested in me. Like, I always thought this day would come. I always worked for this day, and here it is. All I have to do is, like, be the same pitcher when the spring comes. So I had this, like, neuroticism where every day when I play catch, I had to, like, throw hard because I had to, rem I had to like, 
Did I, did I lose it? Do I still throw hard? Do I still throw hard? Do I still throw hard? And I lived that way for a long time and it was exhausting. And only about my second year pro ball was I finally like, look, bro, you throw the same speed today that you did yesterday. Just relax about it because you're tired. You're throwing. I threw more innings in. I almost threw more innings in my first year in pro ball than I did all five years combined in college. So I just got so tired. My arm was so beat up. I was in chronic pain. Even when I wasn't injured, I just realized like, look, you've got to like, just be like a cheetah. You got to lay, lay in wait when the time comes sprint and make the kill. You know, that's, but you know, cheetahs don't sprint around all day. They don't do it for fun. Um, and this is the culture that's getting built out there on social media, just all over the internet when people lack context about what some of these guys are doing. So some of the guys you see on, on the internet doing these, you know, crazy running guns and, and throwing 98 miles per hour into a net when they normally throw 92 off the mound, you don't have the context. Hey, how often is that guy doing it? He might be on a very sensible program where he's not throwing his, his brains out like that all that often. He might only be doing it once a week or twice a week, which is probably okay. And you don't know how well conditioned he is. He might be very, very well conditioned to do what he's doing. And you might not. But unfortunately, there's a lot of monkey see monkey do. And it's going to lead to a lot of injuries. And there's a lot of parents that think, oh, that looks really good. My son definitely doesn't throw that hard. He should get that program. And no one's saying, oh, no, I won't sell that to you. They're just selling them like crazy. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough culture to sort through. But if it seems like if you're not doing what you're doing in moderation, then you should probably reconsider and have someone maybe build a plan just for you that maybe makes a little more sense. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, you need to practice throwing hard to throw hard. Just like if you want to squat and you want to be a power lifter. You can't do it only doing it at 80% all the time. You have to challenge yourself with one and two rep maxes here and there. But powerlifters don't do that every day. Sprinters don't sprint their hardest every single day. None of these people that do these high explosive, you know, high risk sports, they don't do these things every single day like that. They do a lot of other stuff to bolster their arms, to bolster their legs, to bolster whatever body part they're using chiefly to make sure they can withstand the competitive days, you know, the, the powerlifting competitions or the one rep max days or whatever it is that they're doing. They don't usually do that stuff every day. So one of the suggestions I have for parents and players out there is you just have to be, have to find moderation. And again, if you're throwing hard all the time, you're missing out on a huge part of your development as a pitcher, which is learning to throw strikes, which is learning to feel your pitches to feel every time I say your pitches, I feel like an, like an imposter. I don't know. Like you don't talk like that in the baseball lingo, but no, I'm trying to be relatable to everybody, but you don't get to feel your change up. You don't get to feel your slider. You don't get to feel your cutter. You can't just pick these pitches up at full speed. They just don't work that way. So if you don't take that soft, if you don't have those soft throwing days in your week, you're never going to develop that way. And a lot of the problems that I see in kids that don't throw a lot of strikes is they don't consistently accelerate the ball. They'll accelerate the ball a little earlier, then a little bit later, then a little, they'll rotate open a little bit. It's just like the acceleration pattern when they're really applying the gas is different on every single pitch. And that's something very, it's very, very consistent. And you can't rein that in until you learn to throw very consistently lower speeds. So once you can throw the ball 70 miles per hour, like exactly where you want it over and over and over. Then if you add a couple miles per hour, you do the same thing. Your arm learns to 
consistently and like smoothly but violently accelerate the ball at the same way, at the same time, at the same like points in your mechanics, and that's how you throw strikes. So, you know, you watch these guys that can't throw strikes, and there's millions of them now. There's millions of guys that, oh, like I, I got drafted, like I get a chance, and then they go through, they walk six, six batters per nine innings in pro ball, and they stink. They're not going to get to the big leagues that way. No one is. But this culture is so brainwashed about velocity that they think, you know, throwing 95, 98 is better. It is better. But if you can't throw strikes, it's not better. And most of these guys that throw 96 but walk six batters per nine innings, they would have a better chance of making it to the big leagues if they walked four batters per nine innings, which is average. That's not even good. That's average for major leagues. If you walk more than four batters per nine innings in the majors, you're on your way out pretty much. Even Rodas Chapman doesn't walk that many guys. People don't realize that. He is pretty good control not really command but he only walks three batters per nine innings something like that so most of these guys that throw 95 96 most of the time they have no idea where it's going and they walk five six seven batters per nine innings and they don't make it very far because you just have so little margin for error if you're walking that many hitters that you can't give up many hits at all and then you, you know you just can't strike your way out of every jam so anyway obviously though when you do throw harder and when you do strike more guys out it does help you pitch with an inflated walk rate and get out of it but at the end of the day um you know velocity needs to be it just needs to be done in the right way so with radar guns just remember every time you're throwing as hard as you can you're bringing your shoulder and your elbow and your muscles and tendons your and ligaments you're bringing them to their breaking point so just be careful with it you need to think about it that way so that's it for today. That's it for my uh, my my guide to pitching injuries. Again, this wasn't like a, a super medical perspective. It wasn't, you know, when I talk about mechanics, I uh, you know I follow the ASMI guidelines. That's what I'm about. I'm not doing some of this homebrewed research. Um, I'm leaving that up to people who research for a living, and I'm just going to interpret the results and give it out in a relatable style. But you know, there's a lot of other factors that go into injuries besides purely mechanics. Um, like I said, there's there's pitch counts, there's tournament usage, there's the you know the complexion of your pitching style, your repertoire, your mix of pitches, um, your off season structure is really really important. You know your chronic workload, just how often you're throwing through a radar gun. So all these things really really important. And if you are looking to pick up a, a modus sleeve, again check them out, modusglobal.com. They're a good company. They're doing good things. So this was episode 25 of Dear Baseball Gods, and we'll check you out here next week.